iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I told myself before when I was going to surgery that if they did fix me, I'd focus on food. And this was kind of an opportunity to give myself permission to do what I th think is the best use of my time yeah. here on earth. And most people, when they, go, I think, go through that, they I hear this, that they say, you know, I, I want to spend more time with the family, or I want to spend more time at home. I was like, you know, I haven't been working hard enough. You know, my, my, I need to do something that makes a real difference. Right. And it needs, needs to be in food. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We have a fabulous one for you. None other than Kimball Musk, younger brother of Elon Musk, who you may or may not know, is also his longtime business partner, Consul Yeti, investor in all the stuff that his brother does, so SpaceX, Tesla, etc. And they've been at it for a very long time. They're from South Africa, but they started out in Silicon Valley way back in the early 90s. And they sold their first company called Zip2, which was kind of like a online yellow pages married with maps. They sold that for $300 million in cash, $307 million in cash in 1999. And that payday is what sent them both on their way. So Elon went off and did X.com, which became PayPal. Kimball has invested in every business along the way. He's also on the boards of both Tesla and SpaceX. And he has gone off and done some really interesting stuff in the world of food, which is really where his interests lie. And that is why I flew out to Colorado earlier this year to talk about what he's up to. Among the things he is doing uh, is one company called Square Roots, which he has founded. And it is growing food inside shipping containers. And for longtime listeners of this show, you may remember that we did a, a, a podcast with a company called Plenty, which is doing something very similar. But anyway, really cool idea. Um, he's also in the early days of building what he hopes is going to be an empire of affordable, healthy food restaurants called Next Door. And how he's approaching that and scaling that is also really fascinating. So before we get to all of that, it's really fun day in Colorado with uh, Mr. Musk. Just two programming notes before we get underway. One, due to a technical snafu, the first couple minutes of our conversation got garbled. So rather than subject you to that, I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version to kind of catch you up. And two, the last few minutes will sound a little bit different. And that is because we are talking in a car. We're just driving around Colorado. And of course, we started talking about Mars because, you know, that's what the Musks do. So I thought it was worth just sticking it on the end because it is fascinating. 
So anyhow, just stick around for that. I think you'll really dig that. But now just to start the show, let me just catch you up. So it's the Must Brothers. They sell Zip2 in 1999, which, and at the time, $307 million, if you can believe this. It was the biggest private internet company takeover ever. $300 million. My, how times change. It's like a, you know, Series A investment these days. So that sent off Elon to do PayPal. Kimball then moved to New York, where he enrolled at the French Culinary Institute, um, which he said was like a boot camp, which he barely made it through. And that is where we'll pick up. And just one final note, if you hear background noise, it's because we're interview- I'm interviewing Kimball at one of his restaurants in a town called Stapleton, Colorado. Anyhow, I'll leave you to it. Enjoy. I mean, I remember one time I'm a tall guy, and there's this short French chef. He's probably a foot shorter than me, and I could feel the spit landing on my face while he was screaming at me, and I could do nothing. <laughs> you just kind of go, this is just, I signed up for this, I got to get through it. Wow. That's crazy. But you didn't have to be there. I mean, you were kind of a millionaire, you're 27. It was, it was one of those things where I came from also being a pretty big hotshot. Because selling an internet company in 99 was like as cool as it got in the business yeah. world. Yeah, you're 27, you sell a company for $300 million and you're like... Yeah, it was the largest, at the, I mean, this is, the world has changed since then, but at the time it was the largest all-cash technology transaction in history. So it was a big deal. Wow. Yeah, it was a very big deal. And so again, I was a pretty well-known guy and just super humbling to go do that. And part of it was, it was the right thing for me to do. Right. So you come out of it. Came out of it. I was. You survived. Yeah. (laughs) So coming out of it was really amazing. So I came out of it in August of 2001. And September 11th happened a few weeks later. And uh, my mother was a well-known dietitian. I lived right by the World Trade Centers. Yeah. Woke up to the sounds of the planes hitting the building. You know, in a New York mindset, you're like, some idiot has flown a plane, like a small plane, into a building. And... um, you hope everyone's okay, but you know, in New York mindset, you look, whatever. I take a shower. I go take the elevator downstairs to go get a cup of coffee. I get to the bottom of the elevator, and a second plane is at the building. But at this point, I can't see. I haven't looked out the window yet, so I haven't seen. How close are you to the? I'm probably 10 blocks away, but you yeah. can see the World Trade Center is yeah, directly yeah. there. Yeah. I walk across the road to the deli. It's like 30 people in line for coffee, which is, yeah. not, which is an unusual thing in New York. No one's running, no one's, no one's panicking. And I skipped the line because I know the owner, I've been there all the time, and put my $2 at the cash register and I grabbed my coffee. And over the radio, they say the Pentagon just got hit. And everyone just starts panicking, it just starts running. Yeah. And I, get, I go with my wife at the time, we just start running, no, you know, no wallet, no ID, just kind of just, just running. We get to Canal Street, the first one falls. There's a giant wall of, of white dust. Oh, so you were, did you get caught in that? The wall of white dust stopped about half a block from us. Yeah. And out of the white dust comes these fire rescue guys, just like 100 miles an hour, just trying to get out of the, out yeah. of the thing. People are holding onto the sides of cars, completely caked in white dust. We get to Union, Union Square, we see the second one fall. And it was such an incredible experience. The, the only analogy I can think of is 
imagine like the Rocky Mountains collapsing. Yeah. Like it was like reality just broke. Got to 22nd Street, my mother put, she, she had an apartment there. She put us up with a bunch of others and cell phones that weren't working, but you could watch CNN. And then back to the cooking side, my mother got asked if she would cook for the firefighters, volunteer for the firefighters. Yeah. And she said, well, I can't cook, but my, 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 my son just graduated from French Culinary Institute and can cook. And you got to keep in mind the number of volunteers for this. There's probably a million people vol- trying to volunteer. And I also had a security pass because I lived so close. So for six right. weeks, I every day went down and cooked out of this, uh, what's called, what called Boulet at the time. It was a restaurant where the front is blown apart, but the back of house was still super. Oh wow! So the front part of the restaurant was destroyed. Destroyed, but the back back of house was super functional, and it was beautiful, big kitchen. So yeah. we we cooked for the firefighters out of that kitchen, drove ATVs down to this gymnasium, was turned into a cafeteria for the firefighters. Firefighters come in from these giant piles of melting metal yeah. every day. Six weeks later, it just yeah. continued to sort of melting and smoking metal, horrible, horrible smell, and but. It, it was the greatest thing ever to be able to be part of that and to have something to do. Yeah. Not feel, not this feeling of helplessness that I think most New Yorkers had. I was able to participate and cook for the firefighters and seeing them eat real food and connect with each other and go right back out into those giant piles of melting metal. I had never intended to do a restaurant. I just wanted to learn how to cook. Yeah. But after that, I was like, got to go do a restaurant. I just got to do it. Why? I mean, because that's obviously a very... sense of community that that came from the food we were cooking. I think when I was in cooking school, it was much more about the art of cooking and the technique and, like, really becoming good at it. But feeding the firefighters was was this awesome to see the power of food and, and how it brings people together. Right. That feeling of community through food has stayed with us to this day of... We want people to sit down, enjoy their food right. together. It's so that sense of that's not something you got from tech necessarily. No, not at all. In fact, it was the opposite of tech. Tech was was really disconnected from society. It was this very intangible thing. Food was the opposite. It was super tangible. You could get a, you could see the smiles on people's faces immediately. So you started a restaurant. Yeah, it's called the Kitchen. Where? So I did a road trip around the U.S. I could live anywhere. I didn't want to do a restaurant in New York. It just there's plenty of those. There's plenty of restaurants there, but it's also it's just different. You know, New York is a there's there's a lot of things in addition. You know how I have to know how to do. It. In addition to running a restaurant, you have to deal with trash removal. You have to deal with yeah. uh, you know tight spaces and labor was just challenging. There was just a lot of things that just made it not the sort of easy path. Yeah. I also didn't want to live in New York. I lo- I loved. New York in a sense that it's a beautiful, wonderful town to live in. I mean, love, 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 wonderful town to visit. Yeah. But living in it, it's like being in a great party. But no matter how good the party is, at some point in the night, you want to go home. Do you want to take a, take a rest? In New York, you <laughs> never get to go home. That is your home. Right. So you take a road trip and end up... Western side of the U.S., Chicago West, February when, I, when the weather's the worst. Yeah. And um, Chicago, Jackson Hole, Colorado, Boulder, Denver... Um, Santa Fe down to San Diego up to Seattle and even today even though it's cold it's beautiful and sunny yeah. and it's uplifting so Colorado won out 
and of the cities in Colorado, Boulder, I thought was it's a great restaurant town. It's actually got as many restaurants per capita as New York City. Really? Yeah. So fun it's, fact. Yeah, and so it was it was kind of cool in this you know small town to get kind of New York street energy for just maybe a few blocks. And we opened the kitchen. The idea was was a very simple idea was to work with local farmers and know where their food's coming from because it tastes better and you trust the food. Yeah. Back in those days, there was not even a farm-to-table movement. It was no, there was the term hadn't even been coined. Yeah. We just wanted the best ingredients. It wasn't certainly wasn't a movement. In fact, it, it was very hard to get the farmers to even work with you because it'd be fine if you came to the farmer's market, but if you wanted to get a delivery every day, it just wasn't what they did. Yeah. And so we built up some real trust with them and opened the kitchen, hit a nerve. People loved it. Our food was simple, delicious, real food. Trying to do as little to the ingredient as possible, salt and pepper. And it was kind of like high cuisine, right? Or I mean, we would consider ish. it very casual food, to be honest. Very easy to eat right. food. But at the time, it was very unusual to do a restaurant that worked with local farmers almost exclusively. I mean, right. uh, 80% of our product would come from local farmers, which was quite an extraordinary feat. We had 43 farmers coming in the back door. That's on a daily basis. It was a fun thing for us, and we, it was labor of love. Yeah, because that sounds like the exact opposite of tech insofar as that one of the great goals of any technology is scale. Everybody talks about scale. You want to kind of basically do something that it's a platform and go around the world, and you're doing one restaurant with 43 local farmers. Yes, you're right. I think it was, it was a probably a knee-jerk reaction or, or a yeah. counter-reaction to what I, what, what I was living and breathing everywhere else. So you sell Zip2. Yep. And then, is it X.com? That yeah, I was in I was the Other than my brother's first investor in X.com. Which came, became PayPal. Became, became PayPal. But I was just an investor. I was an, always an advisor to my brother and you know, in any, anything he does. But my focus was food. Obviously, that was a great success, PayPal, but it was not, it was not my passion. A year later, we opened the upstairs, which was a restaurant above the kitchen. Mm. Both were big hits, but for me, the the financial side of it wasn't why I was doing it. And so we started to say, well, what could we do with some of the profits? Yeah. Started working with local schools, doing school gardens, supporting a local nonprofit that was that was building school gardens. And it was super successful. Just coming back to your point earlier, like it just d- didn't scale. Yeah, you know, so it was fun and rewarding but not intellectually stimulating yeah so i actually went back into tech i was like okay well i've done the restaurants and continue to do it it wasn't like we stopped it just continues to this day it's it's a wonderfully wonderful restaurant in downtown boulder but the lack of scale was like okay now i've done that right now yeah go back to tech and see what i did but it was quite amazing to to go back into tech i realized how much i love food when you go from something you love to something you like, I hate to say it, it was kind of like chewing sawdust every day. I, was like, I wake up in the morning and say, like, why am I doing this? I never <laughs> and what, thought What that. were you doing? What did you? We were you building said? a real-time search engine. So real-time search was when Twitter was coming about and Facebook yeah. was coming about, the ability to search the internet based on what people were sharing, which now is built into Google and it's part of Google. Right. But the, um, the idea was traditional search was updated every three weeks or three months even. Yeah. The real-time search needs to become real-time. And 
you know, the company was was a fine success. It was sold to Walmart. What they they wanted was was that based here in it was based in Boulder, yeah. Right. So Walmart wanted the search engine because we were a great search company, but also when you think about products and what people are talking about online, it was very relevant to yeah. to them. So we ended up selling to Walmart. And about how much did they pay for that? Or was that I, I actually can't even remember. It right. wasn't a hugely successful sale, yeah. but it was it was fine. About six months before we 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 sold the company, we probably wouldn't have sold. That's when I broke my neck. So that's when I went down. Oh, that was 2010. 2010. So I yeah. So could you explain what happened with the accident? Yeah. So Valentine's Day of 2010, February 14th, went to a ski hill in Jackson Hole with with our kids. I was married to Jen Lewin at the time. And it was a wonderful Valentine's Day morning, you know, just go you know, to the ski hill with the kids. The ski hill was, you know, had a, a sanctioned run for, for, you know, to get in an inner tube and you go down to the bottom. And yeah. It's a pretty dangerous thing, to be honest, but not for kids. I think it was dangerous for me because I'm 6'5", and you get on these tubes that are meant yeah. for 4-year-old, 5-year-old kids. It just wasn't meant for me. And so I got to the bottom, the tube sort of... T- went in a certain direction where my head was facing downhill and it just hit the braking mats and it just threw me I landed on my head in the mid, like mid it just flew me bloody 30 feet and on my head going 35 miles an hour pushed my head down broke my neck just with the sheer force of ripping my head down caused bleeding in the spine I was paralyzed on my left for three days which if you've it's hard to describe paralysis because there's there's no pain. It's just nothing. That must be totally surreal. It is the most terrifying thing yeah. you could imagine because there's nothing you can... Your brain doesn't even tell you something's wrong. And then you try and lift your left hand, it just doesn't lift. It's just yeah, crazy. Kinda, yeah, yeah. So I remember them telling me, actually they told me they could fix this. The way I broke my neck was... They could, they, it was bleeding in the spine, so they could just take the, get the blood out, and it should, I should get, recover my movement. Right. And I'm like trying to listen to this, going, oh, yeah, things, everything's going to be fine. Um, tears were just streaming down the side of my face. I'm like, I have no idea what is going on. Yeah. And so, went in on a Tuesday night. So I broke my neck on Sunday morning. Tuesday night, went in. They flew in people from around the country to do the surgery because they couldn't move me. I told myself before when I was going into surgery that if they did fix me, I'd focus on food. So what, what happened with tech was once you start building a company, you just can't really give up on the company. Like it's your, yeah. your people, your investors, you really yeah. want to keep it going. So it wasn't like I, I wasn't loving my life, but I also didn't want to, I wasn't going to quit. Yeah. And this was kind of an opportunity to give myself permission to do what I th- think is the best use of my time yeah. here on earth. And... Most people, when they, go, I think, go through that, they I hear this, that they say, you know, I, I want to spend more time with the family, or I want to spend more time at home. I was like, you know, I haven't been working hard enough. You know, my, my, I need to do something that makes a real difference. Right. And it needs, needs to be in food. So, woke up the next morning, and they told me the surgery was successful. And what did they do? They, they did a fusion, C6 right. and C7. So they, they cut me open the hip. They f- took a piece of my hip bone and put it into my neck and put a steel pin between 6 and C7, and that was supposed to do the trick. And then they also took the blood out of the, out of the spinal right. column. The anticlimactic part of that was I 
uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where they don't kind of tell you that it takes two months to recover from something like this. Yeah. So, you know, up until that point, they're like, yeah, we'll fix you. You know, we think this is going to be positive. On Wednesday morning, they said, you know, good news is successful. Bad news is you have to be horizontal for two months. And like I basically not moving on your back. On my back first for two months. Right. Get up maybe 15 minutes a day. You know, if you have a busy mind like mine, it is your mind goes at like 30,000 miles an hour if yeah. you can't move your body. And I think there was also a sense of shock in it as well. But I was like, okay, I've got this time. Let, let me work on how to scale what I love, which is food. Yeah. And so we took the kitchen idea and we wanted to continue to grow the kitchen. So we opened in Chicago, beautiful restaurant on the river. We opened downtown Denver. We have a, another one in Indianapolis and in, in Fort Collins. And also wanted to take this idea of real food and make it more affordable. Mm. My co-founder and I, Hugo Matheson, worked on, on this idea of next door. As it happened, we could get the location next door to the kitchen, so we just called it next door. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but the idea was, was to take the same philosophy of the kitchen, but to work at a larger scale, so working with local farmers, or nowadays we work with American farmers because we are more, more spread out. Yeah say to them, hey, we think the purchasing will be this high, and if you are up for that, we want to work with you at a bigger scale. That worked out really well. You know, by this time, this is, this is 2011, so this is seven years after the kitchen. Local farmers were more open to working yeah. at scale. And hipsters around the world were loving... Yeah, this is Farm to Table existed as a movement. Yeah, yeah. And so we said we want to get it at a lower price. And the, we really were quite successful. Next door is... Average ticket of $16, and the kitchen average ticket is $50. So we were able to do one-third the price. Right. We also have this mission of real food for everyone. So we want to get it into the suburbs. We want to get into the heartland of America. So we're in Stapleton. This is a wonderful suburb, up-and-coming suburb of Denver. Yeah. And this is important to us. So we opened up in Stapleton. We opened in Longmont. Yeah. We opened in... Oh, so like I was saying, it's just uh, I was expecting this to be in a bit more of a... Um glamorous location <laughs> right exactly but the point is to be here the point is to be here the point is to have a, a restaurant that brings real food into the suburbs of America right our goal is to replace all the chilies and applebees in America with real food restaurants lots a lot of restaurants tens of thousands of restaurants I, mean, yeah. I think practically speaking we see a market for about 2,000 next doors but that's a lot and you're 10 in or 10 in so how do you get from 10 to 2,000? One at a time. <laughs> <laughs> do you have investors? I mean, how are you going to... Yeah, yeah, we have investors, and we have investors that care about us growing at a certain pace. Anybody we wouldn't recognize? I just don't feel comfortable sharing right. unless they, they're op open to it. But yeah, you would recognize them. Presumably Elon. Yeah, my brother, yeah. My brother and I both invest in each other's companies. Yeah. The idea is really, first and foremost, to sort of solve the problem of what does it take to build a suburban restaurant that does well economically but also sticks to the principles of real food real food is fundamentally delicious food that is that you trust to nourish your body and you trust to nourish the farmer and you trust to nourish the planet trust is the key word and we work extremely hard to to really become the proxy for trust for our guests so that they, you know, if they eat any food here, whether it's a salad or a burger or yeah. however we do it, it's, they know that the food is, is delicious and, and, and they can trust it. Uh, no weird stuff in it, no growth hormones in the beef or yeah. 
no GMOs, you know, think this is food that is simple, delicious food that they trust. You've invested in Memphis Meats. Yeah. Is that right? Because I, yeah. I actually met the founder, Uma. Yeah, Uma's great, yeah. Uh, I was just emailing year. with him this morning. That whole movement is really interesting. The kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, that idea of trusting your food does, does work in that environment. If, if you can remove you know, hurting animals but still have delicious food that you trust, that works great. Yeah. So this idea of whatever lab-grown meat or whatever they call it, Will that be in next door, do you think? I think at the right time. Of course, it's not affordable right now. Yeah. So, of course. But we would, we would do it. We, we, in our restaurants right now, we are quite innovative on the meat side. So we have a 50-50 burger, which is half beef and half mushroom. So that enables you to eat locally raised beef and delicious right. local muff- mushrooms. But the burger is lower calories and it's easier on your system. Um, we have the Impossible Burger, which is a plant-based oh, yeah. meat. And that is... Um, quite good actually it's, it's getting better and they've just come up with a new version that is even better we love being on that sort of cutting edge but we also work with farmers and one of the one of the examples is a fishmonger in Alaska has a lot of offcuts of their salmon this is salmon that goes to the kitchen or French yeah. corner, like really nice restaurants but the offcuts aren't usable right. but we can use it here because we can turn them into salmon, salmon burgers that are absolutely delicious best salmon mm. you could buy and we can do it affordably those kind of innovations make our burger menu really next generation. So you have a locally raised beef burger, you have a beet burger, which is beets made into, it's absolutely delicious vegetarian burger. Absolutely delicious, You'll, we'll get you to try yeah, it today. I'll, do, I'll, <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to try that one, I think. Beets are a funny thing, I love beets, but, but my mother hates beets, but she, she eats the beets here. You just have to know how to cook them well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I grew up on beets and they're terrible, but if you know how to cook them well, they're, they're quite good. And then the Impossible Burger, which we have a vegan version as well as a vegetarian version. So people come here and it's pretty fun for them to try the future of burgers. Speaking of the future of food, I interviewed on this podcast last year, founder of Plenty. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah totally. And that's super interesting idea. And of course, you're doing that as well, right? Which yeah, is totally with of, uh, Square Roots, exactly. Yeah, kind of warehouse farms. I think our model is much better than Plenty in that we, we do climate-controlled environments so we can really make the, the, the greens perfect every time. So we, we use shipping containers, the same shipping containers you might see on the back of a ship. We turn them into indoor farms. We can get 100 pounds a week out of, out of those farms, which is... 100 the, pounds of... Of greens, of any greens. We like to grow herbs because it's the highest value, but you can grow anything. That is the equivalent of three acres of outdoor growing in one container. Wow. So pretty amazing. Yeah. The climate control is perfect. Yeah, how's every, the energy consumption on that? Well, the energy consumption is, is changing over time because just as the lighting gets more advanced, what we do is, because it's in a container, we actually define the climate for, let's say, the basil. Yeah. And we've, we've taken the, the summer of Genoa in 2009, produced the best basil. And so we mapped that climate. And we're like, oh, what time does the sun so come up? So you've reproduced the summer of Genoa, totally. Genoa we, in 2009. Oxygen levels. Right. We look at the, the, the altitude so we can see the humidity and the oxygen levels, carbon dioxide levels. What days did it rain? What time does the sun set? In Brooklyn or where? In Brooklyn. And so you create this thing that makes the best basil, most delicious basil in the city of New York. And we can now replicate that anywhere. And How so many containers do you have? Right now we're doing 10 farms in Brooklyn. Right. And the reasoning is that's really our R&D facility so we, we f- we're figuring out basil we're figuring out mint we're figuring out chives we're figuring out oregano and, and right. all the herbs everyone has a different climate everyone has a different light recipe 
it's a phenomenal what's happening with lighting where you can use less and less energy and you just get the exact light recipe that's required for that for that yeah. green and then once we have that we can replicate it anywhere in the country at any scale we want when does that happen we'll have some exciting news to share over the next year i'd love to just hear how you guys got involved with tesla yeah so my brother was approached by these three guys with an idea to build an electric car he, he joined them as a founder and the idea was to take a Lotus Elise and to convert it to an electric yeah. car. High-end sports car, but really perfectly designed for, for, for a battery-powered electric car. He asked me to join uh, as a founding board member. I love my brother doing interesting stuff, and cars are cool. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a try. <laughs> see, see if I like it. Right. Man, that was a hard company to build. It continues to be a, a, a very exciting company. Yeah, I was going to say, it, must, it sounded like the early days were... I mean, it's always tough, obviously, but it sounds like the early days were particularly I tough. mean, that's what they're doing is super hard. Yeah. It's, they're, and they're not just building cars. They're, they're building the technology to build electric cars and showing everyone else how to do it. Yeah. You know, even releasing the patents so people can copy Teslas because they're encouraging the industry to change. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, that. totally. Now, it's, the industry is changing. And you know, Tesla has this... Ex- extraordinary lead but it still continues to be a very interesting company to be part of I'm sure never a dull moment yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's um, yeah it's exciting the yeah so that's Tesla we also had that we had Tesla during the 2008 crisis when General Motors went bankrupt it's funny we started the company in 2004 with this idea we'd be the General Motors of of the 21st century and four years later we're like no 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 we don't want to be General Motors we're cool (laughs) Yeah, because that was when the company almost went belly up, right? Yep. Or totally. one of the several times it went, almost went belly up. Or was I mean, that the it, main was a, time? it was 99.99999% chance of going belly up in 2008. I mean, everyone went belly up in 2008. Yeah. I mean, we, we were devalued to a very low value, but, but we managed to survive. That also gave us some opportunities. We found the factory in Fremont. Yeah. But, whoa, that was a tough time. Are you on the board of SpaceX as well, mm-hmm. correct? What do you think of space tourism? I mean, I think it's a cool idea. It gets people more engaged in space, and I think it's awesome. It's not not a big part of SpaceX's business. No, um, no. We, we will allow people to go up in space, just like the Russians have allowed, and people go to the International Space Station. One I'm excited about is going for a trip around the moon. I'm really interested in the moon. That'd be cool. And I'm going to do a, a whole episode. There's all this I'm talk now about doing a moon, a lunar base. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't get it. Why, I mean, why have a lunar base? Is it just well, because I it's mean, cool? There's, there's, if you believe in the expansion of the human species, which uh, is cool. I mean, base is, is cool about that. Mars is way more interesting than, than the, the lunar base. But you've got to start somewhere. So I think it's really exciting. And you never know what you've, once, you, once you make that leap, what kind of innovations and advancements in civilization happen as a result. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things we just have to do. And the fact that people are excited about space again is pretty cool. You know, back in you know t- when t- SpaceX was started, everyone had kind of given up on space. The, yeah. The Russians had taken over launching. I think the shuttle still existed, but it wasn't really. Yeah. People weren't really that into it. It's, it was embarrassing. I mean, the Russians took over the space program. But when you're getting involved with these ideas at the beginning, or you do you ever stop and be like? Well, what are we doing? This is just too big of a mountain to climb, or this is just crazy. I think of all the businesses I've been part of, SpaceX was for sure the craziest. 
and is definitely the craziest. But you know, with all these things, you just got to start somewhere and just just keep going. What is it about the Musks that you guys are starting all of these companies and doing all this stuff, and you're not just like you know a salary man? I wouldn't even know where to start to be a salary man. I tried. I did work for someone for a few months for a company, an internet company, in '95 while we were starting Zip2, just to kind of earn some money on the side. I thought I was doing a terrible job, and then I quit about three months in. I was like, I, I got to go work on Zip2. And they're like, oh, no, we want you to stay. We'll give you a promotion. I was like, I'm pretty, pretty much sure I was doing a terrible job. What was the job? I was a, a Cisco competitor in Toronto doing hardware. I was, I was kind of entry level. So I was doing right. sales analysis and competitive analysis, things like that. They, they gave me stuff to do, but I was done by 9.30 in the morning. And then I'm like, no, I got nothing to do. And right. so that would work on my company. And after a while, I was like, I just got to go work on this full time. My first job actually in Canada was I worked in a meatpacking factory. What? Yeah. yeah. So when you come over from Canada, from, from South Africa, the only jobs you can get are, as an immigrant... Like labor. Like really rough jobs. So um, what I'm, was your job at the meatpacking Well, factory? so I, saw, I show up for an interview. They were like, well, here's your hairnet and your, your jacket. There's no interviewing for this job. You just, you just go do it. <laughs> do you have arms and legs? <laughs> exactly. And then I'm in the office, and there, one of the thank God for this. One of the people in the office said, "I think this guy might be better in accounting." And so, so, just in a 30-second span, I went from working on the, you the got line a promotion. to working in accounting. And the accounting office is right there, so I didn't I didn't get out of being in the meatpacking factory. Right. I was just I was in fact it was almost worse because you're in the. You're in like a little mobile office next door, and the smell on the outside is much worse than the smell on the inside. Which part of the factory was it? Like where the cows come in, or where they? No, go it was out? actually worse. So <laughs> I don't think they do this anymore because yeah. I don't think the health standards would allow it. But in 1991, the pieces of the cattle would, that were not used, the offcuts, which basically shot out the, of, a, of a hole out of the side of the, the meatpacking factory and put into a dumpster. Like a cow can. And then it would just kind of <laughs> a fester. A cow cannon. It would, exactly. It would just fester for a week. And then Monday morning, you're not going to believe this is terrible. Monday morning, the, the sausage companies would come pick it up. And what? they put so much crap in those sausages that it didn't matter if the meat was festering. There's so much chemicals they put in it that it just didn't matter. They didn't need it refrigerated. And That's... that smell, I can still remember that smell. I can still smell it. The mobile accounting office was on the other side of the dumpster. And we would just like be doing accounting while meat was being shot out. What was Elon doing at the time? I can't remember actually. He yeah. was a couple of years ahead of me, so he was. I think he might have been doing an internship with Microsoft or something. Right. right. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> Voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. Voiceover on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts calendar double tap to open breakfast with anna from 10 to 11 and get on with your day accessibility there's more to iphone but this, so you always knew that you wanted to do your own thing that was just kind of the way it was growing up or yeah we, we grew up with a family of entrepreneurs our grandfather uh, explored africa in a single engine plane and mapped out parts of africa he flew, he's, him and his wife, my grandmother, they were the only people ever, before or after, to fly in a single-engine plane from South Africa to Australia. 
They flew up, up the coast of Africa, across India, rebuilt the engine from leaded to unleaded, and then rebuilt it back to unleaded, and flew down the Indonesia to Australia. That's a true story. The true story. Wow. Basically, the two of them and gasoline tanks. There's no luggage. So when you're a kid, are you they? Are they telling you these stories? Because totally. imagine, imagine if you told that story, you're like, well, I'm not going to go work in, in accounting and just kind of hang out. Right. It's not, it's not, I mean, I think our family just wants, everyone in the family just wants you to be happy. It's a very positive, supportive family, but the energy is very entrepreneurial. Are you involved with the Boring Company? As an advisor to my brother, but not... You're uh, not an investor in that one? I'm, I'm not. I don't think he's ever, ever taken investments for that. Right. Yeah, because it's interesting just trying to... F- I take it back. I'm a... Because I'm SpaceX owns part of it. I'm... I'm oh, I'm, right. I'm invested right. through that, but not... not at right, any. right. And are you going to get on... Are you going to strap yourself into one of these rockets at some point? I... The trip around the moon. That's what I'd like to do. The first one? I mean, I don't think any of the trips will be dangerous because we would never do that. Yeah. It would be, like, super su- as safe as you can get it. But I think that would be cool. And when is that theoretically happening? Or do we, do we know yet? I think that it's theoretically happening within the next few years. It's just about whether or not it's a priority for the company. Right, 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 right. That's very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Can't think of anything else food-wise. Is there anything else we should should know about the kind of the grand plan? Because it's obviously your effort to kind of use an analogy. It feels like the idea is a seedling in terms of where you want to get to. Well, I think on the food side, there's there's still a lot to cover. I think the Big Green is our nonprofit. Mm. And what I looked at there was figured out how to scale the restaurants on next door. The learning gardens, so school gardens were very successful in that when teachers used them well, when when they got kids teaching, uh, being taught in there, they would improve their test scores, they'd improve their connection to real food. But they just didn't scale at all. Best nonprofits in the country were maybe building two a year. And you, you add it up and in my lifetime we wouldn't finish Boulder County yeah so I was like eh, we've got to find a different way and so uh, together with Jane Lewin my, my wife at the time we designed the learning garden which is this beautiful outdoor environment that is designed to enable kids to spontaneously play in the learning garden teachers to spontaneously teach in the learning garden the final one was really important was we wanted principals to love the idea of having this beautiful outdoor environment in their, in their school and traditional gardens were in the corner of the schoolyard with a fence around it, lock and key to get in. These were raised up right next to the classroom, right next to the playground. We would teach teachers how to teach science in there, but teachers could just go read a book out there. It was with the kids. I mean, it's just a beautiful day outside. Let's go read a book outside. As a result, we get 19 minutes a week on average uh, of kids in, in the learning garden, even in cities like Chicago with, with tough weather systems. Yeah. The other thing we, we, we started doing over the years was trying to figure out local production of greens because in January or February right now, we have to go get our greens from, from California or, or further away. And people really want to trust their food and we, they want it to be local. And so Square Roots is this idea of getting locally produced food throughout, throughout the country every day of the year, best possible, most delicious food you can do it, and doing it with a model that really you know, encourages people to farm. What you're doing sounds a lot like Jamie Oliver. Oh, Jamie's he's, he's a friend and oh, really? he's great. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. He's tried to do a lot around kind of changing food in schools and totally. getting kids involved. He's a huge inspiration for us. 
So his work in, in, in England has been amazing, and not just work in schools, but he's also you know, gotten the government to do a, a sugar tax to reduce the consumption of sugary beverages. We've taken a lot of his ideas and try to apply them in, in the U.S. So you're in contact with him and yeah, totally. exchange ideas. Oh, wow. And you auctioned a Model 3. Yes, we did that a year ago to support Big Green and build more learning gardens. Raised, How much did it raise? Uh, $2.1 million. Someone bought a car for $2.1 million. Well, they bought a car for $10. It's just a contest. So it's $10 to buy a ticket for the contest. And we got 150,000 people to participate. Some people bought more than one ticket and uh, raised 2.1 million. Wow. It was the, one of the first Model 3s ever made. What number was it? Number six. Number six. Handmade Model 3. And the winner was a Michigan native that actually had just moved to Colorado. In fact, we couldn't find the guy because we were looking in Michigan. And it turns out he was, he was from this area. He's now lived in this area. And he, we called him up and said, you've won. And he just couldn't believe it. That's he bought, he bought it, his ticket was $10. $10 Tesla. Yeah. Wow. And you, but you still have a Tesla. I got a new Model 3 that, that's not as cool as that one. But, um, <laughs> but I got a replacement one. And do you have any of the, old, the other old school ones? Like the first? I have a Model S that was designed by, by Franz, by Franz our, our chief designer. So it's, it's, it's a unique interior and exterior that is different to, to what people normally get. Is it like snakeskin or something? It's, it's funny, it's not, not quite, but it's, it's got racing seats inside and the whole interior is like a racing steering wheel. Uh, just the whole inside is kind of racing. And the outside, it's a red Tesla that we coated with a ceramic coating. So it has a ceramic look to it. All of the chrome was, was painted matte black. And then the windows were tinted dark. So it's like this not shiny... Tesla, but right. super cool in a not shiny way. Yeah, yeah. And on the inside, is, it's all racing seats. That sounds pretty cool. It's really cool. <laughs> now you need to get a, a rocket for your backyard or something. Just yeah. Gonna exactly. complete, complete the, uh, the collection. Oh, Prince Charles. Yeah. You were hanging out with him this year. Yeah, he, he had us over for dinner at, at Dumfries' house. As one does. As one does. How did that come about? So he's a huge believer in, the, in, in real food and people trusting their food. And he's been a fighter for this movement for decades. Yeah. And he loves what we're doing in the US and asked us to dinner to talk about just what he's doing. Dumfries he, House works a lot with local food in, in, in Scotland. And he wanted us to share what he was up to. He wanted to learn what we were up to. And it was, it was really cool to, to, to I mean, he, he doesn't get enough credit. I mean, he's, he's been fighting this fight for a long time. And we've, we're, you know, the younger generation kind of taking, a, you know, riding on his coattails to, to help take his vision and make it, make it a reality. Did you get Tesla to be part of the Royal Fleet? Uh, that is funny. He, he was very impressed. He'd never been in a Tesla. So I actually brought a Tesla over to Dumfries house for him to test drive it. And it was quite impressive to see. He, he was super mad at the UK car, car companies because... He was like driving this electric car that was totally possible and everyone in the UK had told him that it was not possible. And basically telling him to get off their case. And he was pretty furious. He came to, came to life around that, the fact that he had been kind of sold up a river by his own companies. So I, I don't think he ever bought a Tesla, but he went back and you know, gave them a handful and <laughs> strongly encouraged them to get their act together yeah as one and does so now Jaguar is coming out with a yeah. electric car and, and I think I 
I was I helped make that possible. Right, right. Oh, the other thing I want to ask you about is esports. Oh yeah, okay. So actually, last year I went to the launch of the um, Overwatch League. Okay. So I met Dan Fiden and some cool. people yeah, totally. around Cloud9, etc. Why have you invested in an esports team? So I very seldom invest outside of food. It's like it's a very unusual thing for me to do. Yeah. My kids. Well, who are? Were, well, they're how old? They're, my, they're now 16 and 13 and, and six. Two 16-year-olds, 13 and six, were just absolutely obsessed with this. And, and it, Fortnite. I mean, Fortnite at the time did, wasn't out when I made this investment, right. but, but yep, Fortnite as well. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's go. And they were just getting to the age where I could explain them what an investment was. And it was the first time I did an investment with my kids. We were like, okay, let's look at the numbers and let's decide whether this is a good idea. What, you took them through like the balance sheet, so to speak? Kind of. I mean, they were, we weren't quite at that level, but it was more like, okay, this is a new industry that was starting... We like the founder, Jack is the founder and he's just a great guy. The, the game is good, but I knew, the, I knew the guys who invented the game. But what was more interesting was the sports team's use of the game. Mm. So the game, of course, was, was a great game, but it's... Which game? This is the League of Legends. Right. Now they've expanded to other games, but at yeah. the time it was just League of Legends. And I knew the guys that were running it, and they um, very impressive guys. So I said to my kids, you know, would you guys want to do this investment together? And it was a fun exercise. Small investor in it, but yeah. I would not put myself out as a as a major owner at all. But it was a it was a cool exercise and, and cool to be part of a, a burgeoning in- industry that my kids were excited about. But yeah, frankly, uh, it's not my thing. I love them and they're wonderful. Uh, my kids, this is their investment. Right. So are they like kind of keeping tabs on the company or doing? I mean. Are they involved as investors? They keep tabs on the company in the sense that they are following Cloud9 as huge fans. Yeah. You know, when there's an update from the investor side, I share it with my, with my kids. Right, right. But, um, but otherwise, they're 16 and 13. Yeah, and yeah. Six is not, it's not yeah, yeah. main part of their day. <laughs> oh, this is like freezing. I know, it's freezing. <laughs> One, two, three. Yeah, we're good, we're good. Oh, my goodness. So, Mars. Mars. You were showing me a picture earlier. Oh, uh, this is the Raptor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an engine that uh, I, um, it's an engine that will launch Starship and take people to Mars. St- uh, Starship, and so that's so. How many people will that fit? Well, I think the I think we can get get a hundred people. I actually don't know the exact number, but it's 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 a real transporter. It'll it'll send a lot of people there. And the idea is. It, very real is to colonize Mars. Yeah. Is this something that you guys talked about when you were younger, or is this? No. I where does that come from? My brother just—it's uh, a real passion of his. And it's great for human civilization. I mean, what I like about Square Roots is we're building the farming for Mars. So those those containers. Of course. Are the way we will grow food to Mars. There's no other way. That's right. I guess. Yeah. Is that part of the business plan? Not really, but I mean, it's 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 back in my mind to kind of go, how would you grow something in a totally contained environment? We our focus is growing food for America and getting real food to Americans, but on Earth, on Earth, and that's really my to- my total focus. But it's pretty cool knowing that what we're doing is designed for growing on Mars. 
or potentially the moon. Moon, no problem. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Kimball for taking the time to hang out for you know, whatever. It ended up being almost half a day in uh, Colorado, which was really a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean, Mars farming, why not? Anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I am not working this week, in fact, um, because it is Turkey Day, Thanksgiving. Um, so I will be in a food coma on a couch um, for the last half of the week, but I will be back uh, working next week. But in the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous weekend. If you're celebrating Thanksgiving, enjoy, and I will see you next week. I'm Danny Fortson from the Sunday Times of London, and this is a podcast about Silicon Valley in eight parts. Can I tell you something interesting that I've noticed about San Francisco? Yes, please. That's a vortex. I think she's a sociopathic liar. Which CEO is more Jesus-like or going to run for president? It's a ride through the past, present, and a look at the terrifying plans for our future. Is it more or less powerful than bioterrorism or a nuclear weapon? So subscribe now to Tales of Silicon Valley on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.